Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 33, which is the psalm appointed for today, Saturday, August the 13th, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We are continuing our look at Judges, uh, chapter 16 today, the first 14 verses, in John's Gospel, chapter 5, the first 18 verses, and in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 7, verses 30 to 43. So we're continuing to look at the life of Samson. And so remember that Samson, we were told yesterday that he killed a thousand men from the, of the Philistines with the jawbone of an, axe, of an ass, and now he, they made him king or judge over him for the next 20 years. Well, normally, if you go through the book of Judges, if you go through the book of the Kings uh, or even First uh, and Second Samuel, what you'll see is uh, the, a story of somebody, and then the end of their story is how long they served. Well, here we get it in the middle of the Samson story, and there's all kinds of scholarly uh, discussion, let's say, about why that would be. And, and this this discussion has been going on for thousands of years. Um, and so the the question is 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 that why are we told in the middle? Okay. And so then what we what we see of the story arc of Samson is basically his spiritual decline, and, and he loses sort of his way and then finds it again at the end. And so that's the reason they say that we're told about Samson's reign in the middle of his story rather than at the end of the story. So Samson went to Gaza, which is, obviously I said before, it's Philistine territory. It's, it's Gaza is one of the cities of the Philistines. It's down on the southern coast of the land. He sees a prostitute, and he went into her. And the Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let's wait till the light of the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and brought them on his shoulders and carried them to the top of the hill that's in front of Hebron. Again, every time I read one of these stories, it's like, holy moly, could this really be true? And then I have to fall back and say, it must be. <laughs> After this... He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. There's a lot of controversy here, too, about who is this Delilah. Was she a Philistine? Was she an Israelite? It's not said who she is. Where it is, it's in the land now. It's about 15 miles south of, a kilometer south of Tel Aviv. Uh, and, and it's the, the site of the largest uh, desalination plant where you take the, the salt out of salt water in the entire world is here in, in Sorek, where she's from. It's, it's an interesting thing, and, and if you remember from a while back when I was talking about Revelation 22, which you can also then wrap into Ezekiel 47, what you see is, is that the water flows out of the temple down to the Arabah and then into the sea, and it makes everything sweet where it goes, and so it takes the salt out of the water as it flows from out from under the temple. But anyway, so Delilah, who is she? Is she a Philistine? Is she an Israelite? We're not told. Is she the prostitute from before, or is she somebody else? There's, there's reasons to say, well, maybe she's an Israelite, because Delilah is actually a, a, a Jewish name. However, 
it's unlikely that she could be the villain of the story and be an Israelite. So most people default back to, okay, she was a, a Philistine. Then the question becomes, did he ever marry her? What, what is the relationship between the two of them? So people come up with other ideas and say, well, she used sex to entice him to tell her these stories tell him for him to tell her what the source of his strength is and so it's it's a very difficult passage from that perspective but it's not a difficult passage to understand but it's just who who are these people and how do you identify them is the only thing so the lords of the philistines came up to her and said seduce him and see where his greatest strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that maybe we may bind him to humble him and we will give each give you a thousand eleven hundred pieces of silver we don't know how many lords of the Philistines there are that come up and do this. But the other argument against her being an Israelite is, is this would make her a villain that she is conspiring with uh, foreigners to betray her husband. Well, that then also sounds to Christians very much like Judas. He's going to get silver. She's going to get silver. Then this whole thing gets wrapped into a million different pieces here because coming up, you're going to see a, a Levite who comes into the land and then he, he, he makes an idol and becomes a priest for a man in the land. And his name is Micah. Well, there's 1,100 pieces of silver there. So then people come to the conclusion that, well, okay, maybe Delilah was Micah's mother because she had these 1,100 pieces of silver. I mean, you can just get into endless loops of speculation about who these people are. So anyway, she's been offered an 1,100 pieces of silver bribe from each of these people. And so she says to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. I can't imagine somebody asking that question, right? I mean, there can't be a legitimate reason for wanting to know this. It's pretty straightforward. So Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings they have, that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. It's an obvious lie. <laughs> so he, he catches on to what's going on here before even the first attempt. The lords of the Philistines then brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in an ambush in her inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire, which is exactly the language that was used for when he broke the new ropes that his own kinsmen, the Judahites, had put on him. It, it said that it, they broke like flax that had been burned with fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Well, I mean, only a real moron would not know <laughs> that the same thing's going to happen again. And, and he does. And so he says, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, we've already been bound with a new rope once, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you've mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen in, in a, so in a loom, um, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. I mean, he, he's saying this is the way to make me mortal. This is the way to make me like other men. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head, and that doesn't seem to have any particular meaning, by the way. You can look in Judaism forever and see that even here, even though seven is such an important and considered almost magical number in Judaism, everybody agrees here it doesn't seem to mean anything, nothing at all. 
there, there's nothing in Judaism that says seven locks of the head or whatever. So that in this one instance, they say, well, those seven, that seven there doesn't actually seem to mean anything. So she made them tight with the pen and said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away from the pen, the loom, and the web. I mean, it's just this, this bizarre story. Why does this guy keep giving this to her? Why does, why does he stay with a woman who's obviously trying to get him killed? It, it's so strange. None of this makes any sense. The Samson story is, to me, the strangest story in the entire Bible. It, it is so much stranger than anything else. It's just unbelievable. And yet... Because it's here, I believe it. In the gospel today, so remember yesterday Jesus was, had gone back up to Galilee, and he was in Cana and healed the son of an official from a distance. And, and now, though, there's a feast for the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool. In Aramaic, it's called Bethesda which is five roofed colonnades. And so the roofed colonnades would provide a place to shelter from the elements. And that's around this pool of Bethesda. So in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, it's an interesting thing to hear it's 38 years. We hear in John 9 about a man who's, been, who's over 40, the blind man who is, who is healed, who is blind from birth. And in um, Acts, just a few, you know, a week ago, we, we saw a man that had been brought to the beautiful gate. He had been lame from birth, and he was over 40 years old. Here, we're just told this man's been here. He's been an invalid for 38 years. We're not told that this one is from birth, and I believe that actually matters. So we're not told that he's been an invalid from birth. We're just told that he's been here for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, so apparently he'd seen him before, he said to him, do you want to be healed? I mean, that's a yes or no question, right? It's pretty straightforward. Do you want to be healed? But the man answered and said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. In other words, he says, this is the way to be healed. It's when the, when the pool gets stirred, there was a belief that, that sometimes the water would be disturbed because it had an underground spring, essentially. And so what they believed, though, that was that it was an angel there who stirred up the water. And if you got into the water while it was stirred up, if you were the first one in, then you got the healing that was on offer in that place. So he's explaining to Jesus why he hasn't been healed. So in essence, it's a roundabout way of saying, yeah, I really do want to be healed, but I don't have any way of getting into the pool quickly enough that I can benefit. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, he didn't have to tell him anything other than to get up and walk. We can see that you're no longer lame, but he tells him specifically in this instance, take up your bed and walk. And and that's a violation, as we're going to find out in a minute. This is on the Sabbath day. So it's a violation of the Sabbath to carry a load, including your bed, on the Sabbath. So Jesus has told him to do something that under Jewish law is considered to be sin in the carrying of this bed. So Jesus tells him to do this. Once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. So he felt it, knew that he was healed, got up, and was not only able to walk, but also to carry a load. I mean, that, that is more than tolerable healing. He is, his legs are strong enough. Not only can he walk, he's also strong enough in his legs that he can carry the bed that he's been lying on. 
And then we're told the kicker, right? Now that day was the Sabbath. So (laughs) the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Nobody's marveling that this man who has been lame for 38 years has been healed and they've seen him there. I mean, they knew who this guy was. They knew that he was lame for 38 years and hadn't been healed. And what do they talk about? They say, no, 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 you're breaking the law, man. You're carrying your bed. What are you talking about? Why are you doing that? They're not saying, unbelievable, guy's been healed. All they're saying is, why are you doing this? Why are you taking up your bed on the Sabbath? He answered them, the man who healed me, (laughs) the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. That's why I'm taking up my bed and walk. I was commanded to do so. Well, here's the other thing that's the kicker. You're not innocent because somebody told you to do something that you knew was a sin. So he's not even getting himself off by saying this, but now, hey, we got two people we can question. So they asked, who's the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Not who's the guy who healed you, but who's the guy who told you to commit sin? Now, the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So Jesus didn't even identify himself to this guy, and the guy wasn't even curious enough to know who he was, and he didn't know before that, even though we know that Jesus was at the in Jerusalem for the Passover feast only a couple of months before. <clears throat> so he... Uh, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. So the guy's moved from the pool at Bethesda, and he's gone to the temple, and Jesus sees him there. And he says, see, you are well. And then says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So the reason I said before that I believe that it's important that earlier we're just told that he was lame for 38 years and not told it was from birth is because of this statement that Jesus makes. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I believe when Jesus says this, in the same way when he heals the man who has been lowered down in front of him when he's teaching in Capernaum, he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Here, because you know what I say there is, what I really believe is that 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 paralysis was caused by some sin this guy had committed. And that's why it was important that his sins be forgiven in order to effectuate the healing. In the same way here, I believe this guy's um, his in, invalid state is due to sin, because why else would Jesus bring it up here? Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I'm not sure that this story ends well for this guy, to be perfectly honest with you, because it says the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. So he found out who had healed him, and he goes and tells them that it's Jesus. He's the guy who told me to sin. Yes, he told me he healed him, but he also had already said, the man who healed me is the man who told me to sin. So if he goes to him and says, Jesus is the one who healed me, then he's actually answering their question, who told you to sin? So basically, he is hanging Jesus out to dry, the guy who healed him. So Jesus tells him, go and sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. And he immediately goes and tells him that Jesus is the one who's done this. So, And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answers them, my father is working until now, and I'm working. So they came after him because he told this guy to do this on the Sabbath. And, and then he makes it quote, worse, and here's why I say that. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
It's not the only time that he's done it. It's not the first time even that he's done it, but they're making a big deal out of it now because they're linking it to him telling people to break the Sabbath. And and who could tell you to break the Sabbath? Well, it's the same person who told David to eat the showbread, the same person who told uh, Samson to marry a Philistine woman and all this other stuff. And so God can go around the rules of the Sabbath because they're God's laws. So when Jesus does this, he is claiming equality with God by doing the things that he's doing. So it's not just the statement that he makes, it's the things that he's doing, telling people to contravene the rules of the Sabbath that say he's above the law. So in the the passage in Acts today, remember that what's going on here. Stephen's been brought to trial, and there's two reasons they brought him to trial, the two accusations they make against him. They say he has spoken against the temple and that he has spoken against the law, the law of Moses in particular. And so what he's done so far is kind of go through Israelite history and say, you know, we've always kind of been disobedient, beginning with Abraham, who, who was told to leave everything and go to a land God was showing him. Well, he didn't do that. He went to Haran, and he stayed there until his father died. And then, after he died, Terah, then, then okay, now I'll go. But So there's a disobedience there, but the promise comes anyway. And then they rejected the initial savior of the people, who was Joseph, who was going to save his people from the famine. And then they rejected Moses initially. And, and so now here we are. And so it's a story of, hey, we have a history of always rejecting God's deliverer. So now he's already said, okay, so Moses had to flee because they asked him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you going to do the same thing to me that you did to the Egyptian? And he says, oh, my crime's known that, that I killed an Egyptian, so I better get out of Dodge. So now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him, Moses, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look. There came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I send you to Egypt. So this whole place about where you're standing is holy ground. Now you can link that back to... um, Jacob's response to seeing angels ascending and descending in the place where he was camping on his way from fleeing from his brother Esau to the point where he's going to go meet his uncle, future father-in-law, Laban. And so he says this is holy ground. So now God declares in this place at Mount Sinai, this is holy ground. And Moses wasn't aware of it in the same way Jacob says, I wasn't aware that this was holy ground. Surely the Lord dwells in this place. And God's saying, I dwell here. So now come, I'll send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, see, it's the rejection of God's uh, provision for a ruler, judge, deliverer. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man, God sent both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. So who else did wonders and signs? Who else offered to take them out? That would be Jesus. He's drawing these very easy parallels all along the way. He he says, we have a habit of rejecting those God sends to us. 
This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. He pointed forward to this one Jesus that, that you're rejecting today. And you're putting me on trial for rejecting Moses. And I'm telling you that Moses prophesied about the coming of Jesus. So if you reject Jesus, you're the ones who are actually rejecting Moses. He says, so this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. And then he says it again. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. So they rejected Moses is what he said. They wouldn't obey him. They rejected him, thrust him aside while he was getting the law that you accuse me of wanting to overthrow while he was on the mountain getting that law. Y'all replaced him. And this is an argument that I've made before, and it comes from Jewish tradition, and it comes from other places as well, that what they're doing when they say to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. And, and what Jewish tradition teaches, and what I believe probably is a good way to interpret it, is what they're replacing there is Moses, who if they've come to think of as a demigod. And the reason they believe that is because he can be in the presence of God and live. And so who they're replacing here is Moses, who can go before us. They haven't yet seen the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. They've come to Sinai. And, and then in that place, they rejected him and they make these gods. And he says, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. So in other words, you want to you want to worship that idol? I'm going to give you over to actual really bad worship. You're going to worship lesser created beings the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? And the answer is no, they didn't. You took up the tent of Moloch, that's, that's the other, one of the other gods, and the star of your god Rephon, that, is, that images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So what, there's, what we're saying is, in rejecting Moses, you rejected God. The fathers actually went beyond that and rejected God. And he's drawing the parallel to say, in the same way, when you reject Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, then you are worshiping other gods by choice. And, and so we need to see, and we need to be wise about things. We need to see the argument that Stephen's making, and, and we need to make sure that who we're following, who we accept, who we believe in, is Jesus. He is our healer, he is our deliverer, and he is our savior. And none other can be found.